Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitmiles.com. Thanks for listening. It really is a privilege to be here and to be sharing God's Word. I love, I love both. I love the church, and I love sharing God's Word. So it, I count this as the greatest privilege. This statement was made to me, I know where I'm at, but I don't know how to get home. I know where I'm at, but I don't know how to get home. That statement was made to me at 3.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning by my directionally challenged daughter. I know where I'm at, but I don't know how to get home. You need to understand, that statement made perfect sense to my daughter Ashley. She has no sense of direction. She got lost the very first time she drove the car by herself. And it has continued to this day. There was a time she was driving from Kankakee, Illinois, where her college was, up to Chicago, which is where she was doing an internship. It's a pretty straight shot. But she called me and she said, Dad, I'm lost. I said, well, where are you? What do you see? What, what street are you on? She said, I don't know, but I think I'm in Iowa. <laughs> if you're driving from Kankakee to Chicago, I don't think even if you made a wrong turn, you'd end up in Iowa, at least not for several hours. Now, this happened all the time with her. In fact, I told her if she was going to drive my car, she had to follow this one rule. Whatever way her instinct, her gut, was telling her to turn to get to her direction, whatever she felt like was the right way to go, she needed to go the opposite direction. <laughs> and, and even this Christmas, she, she lives in California. She was at our house over Christmas. Even this Christmas, she said to me, I'm so glad you taught me that because my gut is wrong 100% of the time. Well, let me tell you when she made that comment to me, I know where I'm at, but I don't know how to get home. Ashley was home for the weekend from college. She borrowed our car on Friday evening to drive down to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Now, for you who aren't familiar with the east side of Michigan's geography, let me give you a quick geography lesson. We lived in West Bloomfield. Ann Arbor was about 35 or 40 miles south of us, a little west, and is where the greatest college football team plays. <laughs> Round trip from our house to Ann Arbor was about 75 to 80 miles, unless you're Ashley. The adventure started on her way down to Ann Arbor, and she called me and she asked, Dad, do I come to Ann Arbor before Toledo? Toledo, Ohio. Why, Ashley, are you in Toledo? Almost. <laughs> Toledo was south of Ann Arbor by 50 miles. We lived north of Ann Arbor by 40 miles. She had completely missed Ann Arbor. Evidently, she didn't want to be distracted by reading road signs. So she got her turned around. She got to Ann Arbor. I told her to be home by 2 o'clock, and she agreed to the time of around 1.30 or so. The telephone rings. She yanks me out of a deep sleep. I groggily mumble into the phone a word that sounded like hello to me. It was cheerful Ashley, and she tells me she was just calling to let me know she was leaving Ann Arbor and should be home by the set time. I said okay and fell back to sleep very quickly. 2.30, the phone rings again. One more time, I roll over, I mumble hello. Again, it's Ashley, but now she's irritated. She said, Dad, I'm on 23 and I can't find 275. 
I said, Ashley, that's because 23 and 275 don't ever meet. I then asked, where are you? She said, well, I see a sign for 69. Thinking that she might be a bit dyslexic, hope, really hoping that she was a bit dyslexic, I said, do you mean 96? Which would have meant she was pretty close to our house. She said, no, I see 69. So at that point, I realized my daughter is now in Flint, Michigan, which was north of us, 35 or 40 miles. Remember, Ann Arbor was 35 or 40 miles south of us. I tell her she needs to turn around and come back down 23 until she came to M59 to get on that going east towards Pontiac. I told her the signs were very clear and just follow the signs towards Pontiac and after about 10 miles or so, you'll recognize where you're at and you'll be able to get home. By now, I'm wide awake. And so I wait until I think she should be at M59 and this time I call her back. I ask her where she's at, and she says she's at M59, but the exit was all torn up, and they had detour signs and barricades and cones, and, and she couldn't figure out how to get on M59. At this point, her frustration and mine had reached a new high, and she said, Dad, I hate driving. And I'm thinking, Ashley, I hate you driving, especially at 2.30 in the morning. I bit my tongue and didn't say what came to my mind, at this point, I figured it'd be easier for her just to stay on 23 until she came back to 96, and she'd be able to take that east until she came to M5, and I knew she'd be able to get home from there. She was very familiar with that area. So again, I waited until I thought she should be at US 96 and M5, call her back. If she missed M5, she would have ended up in downtown Detroit at 3 in the morning. That's not good. That's not good if you have full body armor on and a, an assault team and the Secret Service protecting you. She answers the phone. Again, I ask her where she's at, and she said she's on Pontiac Trail in Milford. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but suffice it to say, she should not have been on Pontiac Trail in Milford. As patiently as I possibly could, I said, Ashley, why'd you get off the expressway? You weren't supposed to get off of 96 until you came to M5. Why did you get off? Her explanation was something about she thought she had missed M5 and she had gotten off and headed back west and she recognized the name of the town close to us, Milford, and she thought she'd be able to get home from there. But of course, when she got off the exit, she wasn't right in Milford and that's when she spoke those now infamous words, Dad, I know where I'm at, but I don't know how to get home. At that point, I made her stay on the phone with me until I could talk her all the way home. I made her read every sign, every road sign to me, and we finally got her home. Now, that statement, I know where I'm at, but I don't know how to get home, has stuck in my mind because I think that not only describes directionally challenged people like my daughter Ashley, but also some people and where they're at spiritually. I think many of us know where we're at. We know where we're at spiritually. We know we love Jesus, we believe in Him. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we also know there are times we don't have the mind of Christ. We don't have the attitude of Christ. We don't have the actions and reactions of Christ. And because of that, we're not experiencing His power or His peace. We don't know joy in chaotic times. We're stressed out. We lose sleep. At times we get so angry at others, and sometimes it's out of control. We know where we're at, but we don't know how to get home. Now, I don't know what that word home conjures up in your mind. 
I don't know the kind of emotions that might be, begin to churn within your mind and, and your heart when you think of home. For, for some, it's great. It is awesome. You love the home you grew up in. You love your home right now. But for others, that place might represent a place where you couldn't wait to escape. There was so much fighting and, and screaming and name-calling. You couldn't wait to get out of there. For others, you think of that place where unspeakable abuse took place. For others, you think of the, the tension and the stress and the slamming doors and the silent treatment that's going on right now. You don't like the thought of home. But let me tell you, that's not the way it's meant to be or should be. In fact, home is meant to be that place where you feel absolutely secure and safe. It's meant to be that place where you can kick off your shoes and wear that ratty old bathrobe, and you don't have to worry about what others think of you. It's meant to be that place where when you're down, there are others who, who can lift you up. It's meant to be that place where, where when they have been battered by life, you can be supporting and encouraging them. It's that place where when you've been hurt, there are others who can step up alongside of you and, and help and bring healing. It's meant to be a place where you are challenged to be your very best and a place where even when you have failed, you know, you know you are loved. That's the kind of home we all want to experience, isn't it? John, in his gospel account of Jesus' life, stated, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And that literally means He, the Word, Jesus, came and made His home with us. Jesus, by leaving the splendor of heaven and coming to earth, he provided that place, that relationship that is best described as being at home. Moses understood this when he prayed in Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, you have been our home since the beginning. And Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been given some great directions on how to get home, how to walk out our faith. We've seen the importance of prayer and the Word and fasting and choosing one thing, one spiritual practice each year to work on and really walk out our faith. Those aren't things we do because they're required of us. We aren't working for our salvation. Salvation, that's a free gift of God. But those things are the result of our salvation. Us wanting to do whatever is necessary to grow in our faith. It's directions on how to walk out our faith and be at home. Well, there's another crucial direction we're given in the Word. If we're ever really going to experience what it means to get home, we need to follow this instruction, this direction. If you know where you're at, but you don't know how to get home spiritually, this model we see in Scripture is for you. Take your Bibles and, and turn over to Acts, the second chapter. Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 41 to 47. This happens on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on the 120 who had gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem and had prayed together and waited together for what Jesus had promised. And they prayed some more. And I'm sure they had forgiven each other. And, and I'm sure they reminded each other what Jesus had taught them through the Word. His mother was there, his, his brothers were there, the 11 disciples were there, the women who were a crucial part of Jesus' ministry were there. I have no doubt that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were part of the 120. Maybe the formerly blind Bartimaeus was there, uh, and, and maybe some who had been fed by a kid's lunch, and 
Maybe the woman who had that issue of blood that was miraculously healed and, and Jairus and his wife and his formerly dead 12-year-old daughter. Maybe they were there for those, for those days. We don't know all who made up the 120 who gathered together for 10 days, but we know what happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to share the good news of Christ crucified and resurrected. Peter, now filled with the Spirit, preached like he had never preached before. And the people who, who filled the streets of Jerusalem and heard Peter preach, they understood where they were at spiritually. They understood they were the very ones who had been shouting for the crucifixion of Jesus. They understood. They had been calling for the execution of the promised Messiah. Make no mistake. They understood where they were at spiritually, but they didn't know how to get home. In fact, the Scripture, it says, when the people heard this, Peter's sermon, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter told them exactly what they needed to do. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's talking about you and me. For all whom the Lord our God will call. And then the word says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What we're told next is absolutely crucial for you and me. We're giving, we are being given a, a model of what is necessary for us to really walk out our faith. We're given directions on how to be able to get home even when it feels like we're lost. And it has everything to do with community and realizing we are not meant to walk this walk of faith alone. So let's start reading Acts 2 verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, their stuff they gave to everyone as he had need every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their home and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's what God started doing here, if he started adding to our number daily those who were being saved, I wouldn't hardly be able to contain myself. That would be so awesome. Don't we want to see that happen? Not just adding to our numbers, but adding to our number daily those who are being saved. Well, what was it about these people that made the difference? How, how is that even possible? What directions were they being given to walk out this new faith and really for the first time experience home? Let's look first at the devoted. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves. Before we look at what they devoted themselves to, let's be sure we understand what that word devoted means. Different versions of the Bible translate it differently. So the NIV says they devoted themselves. King James says they continued steadfastly in. 
New American Standard says they were continually devoting themselves. Another translation simply says they committed themselves. This particular Greek word that's used, which is translated devoted, is made up of two different words that are smashed together. And the first meant constantly moving towards your goal. And the second meant be strong, be diligent, to endure no matter what. Don't give up. So when you put those two words together, it meant that which you are moving towards must take priority over everything else. That which you are devoted to must take priority over everything else. That which you are devoted to must take priority over everything else. Now let's be sure we understand, number one, who the devoted were. The who is important to understand because if we think the devoted are different than us, then we can and we will excuse ourselves from being the devoted. We can and we will say, well, the devoted are something special. Or, or God, God called them to do something extraordinary. That They're not your normal, typical person like me. I'm not like them. I, I'm too busy. My past is too bad. I got, I got too much going on right now. We need to understand the devoted were just normal, everyday people who had lives that were jam-packed with things they had to do. When it says in verse 41... Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then when it immediately says in verse 42, they devoted themselves, the they who's being referred to are the 3,000. Brand new Christians, people who had called for the death of Jesus. It wasn't simply the apostles who had traveled with Jesus for three years and seen all the miracles and had been called and taught by Jesus to be devoted. It, wa it wasn't even the 120 who had gathered in the upper room and were filled with the Spirit that we're told about earlier in this second chapter. It wasn't the 500 we're told about in 1 Corinthians who actually saw the resurrected Jesus. It was the 3,000, the normal, everyday people who had kids to take care of and jobs to do and household chores to complete. And you understand, they didn't have any of the conveniences which are supposed to save us time. If they wanted clean clothes, they didn't throw them in the Maytag. They threw them in the river and beat them on a rock. If they wanted to drink water, they didn't turn on a faucet. They had to walk to the town well, draw the water, carry it back home. If they were going to cook anything, first, before they did that, they had to build a fire. And before they built a fire, they had to collect the firewood. They couldn't run down to the grocery store for a bag of flour. They had to plow the ground and plant the seed and harvest the wheat and then grind it just for a little flour. You see, we have a tendency to think, oh, those people weren't as busy as I am. They could be devoted because they had a simpler life and they had more time to be devoted to those kind of things. That's not reality, folks. They were just as busy, maybe even more so. They worked just as many hours, maybe more, for less pay. They had responsibilities just like us. They'd get sick at inconvenient times. They had taxes to pay and a corrupt government to deal with and family emergencies and all the other things that we have to deal with. So the devoted were just normal, everyday people who had asked Jesus Christ to come into their life and be their Savior. They were just like you and me. Secondly, we need to understand the when. When were they devoted? One or two weeks out of the year? Or, or maybe every Sunday when the Christians got together to celebrate the resurrection. 
And oh, by the way, you understand the 3,000 considered themselves to still be Jewish. So they went to the synagogue or the temple every Saturday like every good Jew did. And, and, and then the 3,000 went to church every Sunday just to celebrate that a dead man had walked out of a grave very much alive and had radically and wonderfully saved them and transformed them. And they now knew he was the promised Messiah and Savior. And you understand, Sunday was also a work day for them. But here they were gathering at the, going to the synagogue or temple on Saturday and the church gathering together on Sunday. And we think it's too much when we're asked to come to church every Sunday. So when were these people devoted? The very word means constantly and continually. In verse 46, it says, every day they continued to meet together. You don't see it in the English, but it's the exact same Greek word used in verse 42. In verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves. And then in verse 46, the exact same word is used saying, every day they continue, they devoted themselves to meeting together. The very nature of the word shows it was a constant and continual thing. It wasn't an on-again, off-again thing. Being devoted was not based on on their circumstances, their financial status, or, or the busyness of their life. Their devotion wasn't based on how urgent things were that were going on in their lives. They had come to the conclusion that there were certain priorities in life that were more important than even the urgent, and they possessed a determination that nothing would take precedence over those priorities. That these priorities in life were the important, and they devoted themselves to constantly and continually keeping these priorities in their proper place. They determined that the important was more important than the urgent. They determined that the important was more important than the urgent. Folks, we need to look at that determination on their part, the determination. But, but let me tell you, while this was key for them, this is key for you and me as individual Christ followers and really for the church if we're going to see God do some amazing and exciting things in our midst. If we're going to see Him adding to our number daily those who are being saved, it will happen not simply because of the pastor and the pastoral team we have, not because we have great times of worship, though we do, not because we offer some great and helpful, insightful classes, though we do, and, and offer fun family times, though we do. It will only happen as God responds to ordinary, normal people being devoted and absolutely committed to certain priorities. And these priorities all had to do with community, being part of a community, walking out our faith, not alone, but together. So let's look at those priorities that this group determined were more important than the urgent and all the other things in their jam-packed lives. Number one was instruction. Verse 42, they devoted themselves constantly and continually. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They understood. They had to learn a new way to think and act. They had lived all their lives and handled all their relationships and handled their finances not as a follower of Jesus Christ, for a lot of years just doing their own thing. So they knew if they wanted better marriages and if they wanted to be more effective parents, if they wanted to get their financial house in order, if they wanted to quit living by an eye-for-an-eye type of life and rather be kind and forgiving even to the one who doesn't deserve kindness or forgiveness, if they were going to go the second mile and the third mile and the fourth mile, if they were going to learn to turn the other cheek 
when they had been insulted or someone had been rude to them. It wasn't just going to happen. God wasn't just going to snap His almighty fingers and make them that way. They had to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the instruction from God's Word, and they did it together. They came together in community and learned together and grew in their understanding of God's Word together. They didn't just come together on Sundays, sit in chairs and stare at the back of someone's head and, and listen to someone. There were no Lone Ranger Christians. Together, they were devoted to the apostles' instruction from God's Word. Number two was involvement. Involvement in the life of other believers. Verse 42. They devoted themselves constantly and continually to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, did they have other urgent things they could have been doing? Of course, absolutely. But this became a priority that they were devoted to and would not compromise on. And you understand, the 3,000 didn't show up at one person's house for a giant picnic. They broke up, and evidently, they broke up into small groups and met all over the city, and they ate together, and they prayed together, and they chose to share themselves with another. Again, in that 42nd verse, we see it. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. And that word, fellowship, that's a, such a good-sounding, churchy word, isn't it? Man, we think we have a handle on fellowship, don't we? We say things like, come for the food, fun, and fellowship. We'll say, why don't you join us at this men's outing or this women's outing? We'll have a great time of fellowship with other Christians. Man, you should join our life group. We have, we have great times of fellowship. And it's almost as if we equate fellowship with a party or any other time we gather together in the church when some sermon, boring or exciting, isn't being preached. It's that time when you... You get together with your Christian friends and you kind of let your hair down and, and you have fun. And we call that fellowship. Well, that's not fellowship. That's the structure of fellowship. That, that's the vehicle of fellowship. It's the place where fellowship can happen, but it isn't fellowship. Whenever this particular Greek word for fellowship is used, it always has togetherness in mind, the sharing of something together. But it's best understood as the sharing of yourself with another person. It's the abandoning of our own self-interest to give ourselves away for another. It's the abandoning of our own agenda. But it's not simply living by the agenda of another person and letting them dictate what we should be doing or not doing. Because we all know there would be people who would absolutely try to take advantage of you and your time. So it's not abandoning your agenda for their agenda, but it's abandoning your agenda for God's agenda. So when God says, share yourself with that person, give up your time so that person isn't so lonely. Help meet their need. Give to them financially. You're willing to do that because you understand that's God's agenda for me. You see, that is absolutely what was going on with these early Christians and what they were committed to. When it says they were devoted to the fellowship, that doesn't mean they were devoted to getting together with other Christians for a party or some other good time, but they were devoted to getting together so they could share themselves with each other. If it meant their time, they gave their time. If it meant sharing a meal, they invited someone into their home. 
If it meant sharing financially with a brother who was hurting, they did that. If it meant becoming vulnerable and admitting an area of weakness and asking for help, they did that. It says they devoted themselves constantly and continually to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. They gave to everyone as he had need. They met every day in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. And then it tells us why they even did this. This is key. For this to really become a priority in their their life, this is key. Verse 46, they did this with glad and sincere hearts. King James Version said, with gladness and singleness of heart. That, that means it became a priority for them. It wasn't, what will I get out of this? It wasn't, ugh, I got to do this again. It, it, it wasn't, uh, let me see if I can juggle a few things around so I can help that person. It wasn't duty. It was delight with gladness and singleness of heart. They gave themselves away for the good of another. The third part of community we see from those new Christians was influence. They, they really, really understood the whole concept of being salt and light. They understood they had to be influencing others who didn't know Christ yet. They couldn't be satisfied with just hanging out with their Christian friends, doing Christian things. They said a priority, which, is, which we are absolutely devoted to and committed to, is influencing others to Jesus Christ. So together they met in the temple every day where others could see them. And they praised God out loud so others could hear them. And they told their own story over and over again. They told of the miracles they saw God doing. And verse 43 says, Everyone, those that they were influencing, everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And verse 47, Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people those they had influence with. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They understood they had to be devoted to influencing others to Christ by the life they lived and how they interacted with others who didn't know Christ yet and by how they influenced, how they were influencing others by how they reacted and acted in their community of believers. And then the fourth thing they were determined to do was investment. They were not only fully devoted to the priority of investing their time and their talents, but listen, they were devoted constantly and continually. They were committed to the priority of giving their resources, their money, for kingdom building. So verses 44 and 45 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, their stuff. They gave to anyone as he had need. And just a couple pages over in your Bible, in chapter 4, starting in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need." They were absolutely devoted to using the resources God had blessed them with to build his kingdom, to build community, to lead others to follow Christ. So they had these four priorities in life, instruction, involvement, influence, and investment. 
And they said, we're going to be devoted to these four things. We're going to walk out our faith together. These four things are going to take priority over all the other urgent things that are already in our jam-packed life. And we're going to see what God will do with a group of people who are devoted to community. And because of their determination to be committed, to be devoted to those priorities constantly and continually, God began to do the extraordinary, miraculous, exciting things in their midst. We read it. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, let's get this to the nitty-gritty. Let's quit talking about Jerusalem First Missionary Church, and let's start talking about Summit. Let's quit talking about what they were devoted to and let's talk about what we're devoted to. Let's quit talking about them, and let's start talking about us. If we're going to walk out our faith, if we're going to really experience what it means to experience home, we have to be willing to follow the directions our God, our Father, is giving us through the Word. We may know where we're at, but do we know how to get home? We've heard it over the last number of weeks. If we're going to walk out our faith, we need to be in prayer and willing to fast. We need to work on one faith practice at a time over the long haul, no short-term effort. And I suppose in some sense we can do those things on our own, in the quietness of our own home. But this last part, community, has to be done together, individually, but also together. We need to be devoted to instruction, involvement, influence, and investment, and doing it together. And when that happens, not only will we experience all that God has for us as a person, but also as a church. We'll see God doing the miraculous among us. We'll see God adding to our number daily those who are being saved. So let me ask you, are you really walking out your faith? Are you devoted constantly and continually to taking these directions from God's Word, from your Father, on how to get home, and doing this together in community, making them a priority over everything else. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and join me here. Let me ask you another question. If you were marooned on a desert island and could only have a single book with you, what would you choose? If you were marooned on a desert island and could only have one book with you, what would you choose? Someone once asked that question of G.K. Chesterton, given his reputation as one of the most intellectual and creative Christian writers in the first half of the 20th century, one would naturally expect that his response would be the Bible. If he was marooned on a desert island, what was the one book he would want to have? Well, this great Christian, this man who loved Jesus deeply, this theologian, this creative writer's answer was not the Bible. When asked that question, his response was, Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. <laughs> Think about that. That just makes sense, doesn't it? When we're trapped on an island... We want a book that will help get us home and get us off the island. We don't want to be entertained. We don't want to be informed. We don't want a book that will make us laugh or cry or even inspire us. We want a book that will show us how to get us home. And in this life, we want a book that will show us how to walk out our faith. 
Well, through the written word of God, the book, over these last weeks, we've been shown what we really need to do to walk out our faith and experience home. The question for you and me is, are we willing to be devoted to God's instruction together? Being involved, willing to share ourselves with another, committed to the community, being an influencer for Christ, and together be willing to invest in His kingdom. What would happen if we became devoted to the community and these four priorities? Man, if that happens, watch out. Because God is going to be doing even more awesome things than He is right now. Let's pray for that together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it, through Your Word, You have spoken to us. And Lord, we don't want to just say we want to see awesome things happening here at Summit through You. We know You respond to Your people when we make these priorities number one thing in our life. Help us to do that, Lord, and live it out. Make Your church what You have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.